magical. That's how our guest today, international best-selling author Dean Koontz, describes the feeling that he had when his heart dog, Trixie, came into his life. She was a special golden retriever who would become his companion, his inspiration, and eventually his co-author. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Dean Koontz has written more than 100 novels. Many have appeared on the New York Times bestsellers list. 14 hardcovers and 16 softcovers have risen to the coveted number one position on that list. He sold over 500 million copies worldwide, and he has a career that spans six decades. Today, in this special episode, we are going to explore Dean Kuntz's admiration for dogs, which has underpinned his writing since the beginning. As you'll hear, Dean was almost strangled by a dog when he was six. His interest in the organization Canine Companions for Independence began as research for a book and continues today as one of the nonprofit's largest benefactors. The canine connection is inextricably woven throughout so many stories that the celebrated author has told over the years. Sometimes a dog plays the lead character or a supporting role, or on more than one occasion, is the co-author of his books. This conversation with Dean Kuntz will take you to the deepest of places about the love and respect that we all have for dogs and the pivotal role that they play in our lives. There is so much more to this writer, this man, this massive dog lover. Dean Kuntz, thank you for being with us today. Dogs, they, they play such a central character in your life and your writing. Why? I started writing about dogs before I had one. Watchers, I never had a golden retriever. And we had two dogs for very brief periods when I was a child. But we were a very poor family and it was country and the dog wasn't in the house. And in the one case, the dog didn't last more than a week because its name was Tiny. And Tiny weighed 120 pounds when we got him. And my dad thought he was going to teach him to be a hunting dog, which he couldn't do. And I was out playing with Tiny and he wrapped his chain around my neck. And I was about five or six and that dog was strangling me and didn't know it. My mother looked out a window and saw it and came running out and got me out of the chain. I had link marks around my neck for a while. No. And uh, she insisted Tiny is gone. So Tiny was gone. So when I started writing about dogs, it wasn't from much of a childhood experience of dogs. It was just because I'd always admired them. And this idea for watchers came to me, and it was irresistible, the idea of a dog that comes out of a laboratory of enhanced intelligence experiments and is able not to talk, but to, in its way, communicate at a higher level because it has almost human-level intelligence. And that started me writing about dogs, I think. And I found it fascinating. So I frequently include dogs, sometimes as one of the major characters, sometimes as a supporting role. I just had a book out last year, Devoted, in which I visit the idea of the human-dog bond and say it is so mysterious and has been going on for so many thousands of years that there is a possibility one day it will evolve into something more wondrous than we can ever imagine. I totally believe that. So how long ago did Watchers come out? Because you got Trixie when you were about 53, right? Your first dog, your first real dog. Yeah, that's probably pretty close, yeah. Uh, The Watchers was written back in the uh, mid-'80s. Okay. So did that evolve? Did your thinking about dogs totally shift when you had Trixie, who is your heart dog, and we will get into her, versus versus obviously, you know, this ferocious 120-pound dog that almost killed you when you were a kid. Yeah, I think writing about this golden retriever, it was a very emotional book, which I think is one of the reasons it's done so well over the years. I think we're past 14 million copies of that book of Soul Worldwide, and it never goes out of print. And it was a joy to write about that. There was nothing from a dog's point of view, however. And uh, ultimately, I kind of wanted to do that as well. 
I got fur in my tongue by that. We all do. Instead of tongue-tied, we get fur tongues. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I heard so much feedback from dog owners that I had gotten the dogging watchers. Mm-hmm. So right, that, of course, motivates you to want to write about dogs some more because you want to, if readers said, hey, you did that really well, you think, oh, good, then maybe <laughs> I'll try that again. Good writer, good writer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was not a long time after that, just a couple few books later, that I wrote a book called Midnight. And this is how the dog thing moved in my professional life and also personal life. I was looking for something unusual with a character. And I read this article about Canine Companions for Independence. And I thought, oh, that will increase suspense a lot if there's a secondary character and story thread. This town that's under siege, there's a man in a wheelchair that you come to like and he's got this assistance dog and that ups the tension in that storyline and after that book i published it was the first book i ever written that went to number one and the people came on companions came and said hey we love seeing our name in the book and about us and our dog when the paperback comes out would you put our address and a little bit about us in it i went i should have thought of that <laughs> in hardcover so I said, sure. And then they invited us at that time. The closest uh, campus was in uh, San Diego. And they invited us to come down there and see them. And, and we did. And we were absolutely captivated. And we started working with them. And years went by that we were donating to them and working with them. And uh, they kept saying, you've got to take one of our release dogs. And we kept saying, we're too busy. We're too busy. And I said to my wife, we're going to be 90 saying we're too busy. Just get off the dime and say, yeah, we'll take a dog. And that dog was Trixie. And everything I thought I knew about dogs, I did know. But there was so much I didn't know until one was sharing our life. And they became as magical as I already thought dogs were. They were far more magical than I ever realized. And Trixie was the first, Anna then followed. Trixie was actually in service as an assistance dog to a young lady who lost both legs in a traffic accident, a beautiful girl. And uh, then Trixie developed an elbow problem and had to be taken out of service and came to live with us. Then Anna came after her and Anna failed out of training after 20 months because she couldn't be broken from chasing birds. Not the best assistance dog. If Especially they're... if you're tethered to the wheelchair. When you're... <laughs> Although they're now there's fodder for a story yeah. right there. <laughs> and then after Anna passed, uh, Elsa came to us. And Elsa, they no longer say the dog failed out. We're too politically correct for that. We now say the dog had a career change. I love it. I love it. The PC have come to the uh, the assistance dog world. Yes. And Elsa failed out at 21 months or had a career change yes. at 21 months because in the words of the people at CCI, she doesn't want to work. She wants to cuddle. Hmm. And that is true. And Goldens are an amazingly affectionate breed. But this girl is the most affectionate of the three we've had. And uh, she's right here now. She won't go anywhere. That's why I seem to be jerking around. <laughs> it's not me. It's the dog that's it's nudging me. It's, it's love nudges. I have to keep a hand on her and patting. Absolutely. And that's how you get fur tied. <laughs> yeah. And there's a genetic connection between those three Goldens, right? Yes. This was kind of amazing. When we got Anna, I took her the first day into uh, our vet. We take our dog in for a bath every Thursday and we make sure that she's on everything she needs, shots and all that. So I took Anna into the vet and he came into the room and he said, my God, she looks exactly like Trixie. And he said, I've treated hundreds of Goldens. And one thing I like about the breed is there's all kind of different faces among Goldens. But these two look very much alike. And I said, I thought so too, but... But you're the expert. <laughs> then it turned out that CCI didn't even know this. After they got the, all the dogs' papers together to send me, they were reviewing them, and they discovered that Anna was Trixie's great niece. So that we said, ah. 
And then when Elsa came to us, it turned out that she, part of her lineage is she's a great niece of uh, Anna. And the strange thing about this is the dogs came from different breeders, but those breeders worked with each other and they were in different states. And nevertheless, we've kept the same line down through three dogs. So it's been kind of eerie, but wonderful. Well, it is also part of the story of Golden Retrievers, which is that they, you know, there's kind of a small gene pool which keeps being bred. And I think that contribute to some of the health issues that they have, right? Yes. Uh, we lost our first two to the same cancer. Now, Elsa looks exactly like a golden retriever. She's a beautiful specimen. She is part lab. Mm. And when I took her to the vet the first time, I called in, got the appointment. I said, tell him we've got a new dog. She's part lab, part golden. And he walked in a room and he said, no, she's all golden. And I said, no, she looks all golden, but she's part lab. And they've been breeding them that way in part for the strength of the lab, ease of personality of the golden, but also to hope that this will reduce the amount of that cancer the goldens are so prone to. And we're certainly hoping because it's a, it's a horrible thing. It is. And that's hemangiosarcoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, you have the strong connection to CCI, which I think is fascinating that that evolved. Basically, you read an article, you included it in a book, and then they approached you and said, hey, thanks for featuring us. And so that was pretty, uh, I would say there's the hand of fate that may have had a role in that, wouldn't you? I, I would definitely say that. It had other impacts on my work as well. As we got deeply involved with them, and we would be going to graduations, and we went to a two- or three-day affair there when they were still in the San Diego area. And we just started meeting so many people with severe disabilities. And as a writer, I started to think, huh, you never see these people in fiction unless the story is about a person with a disability. And I thought, but here's wonderful character material. You can have somebody who is in a wheelchair or who is a Down syndrome child or who is autistic. And that's not what the story is about. It just so happens that's who they are. And they have a role in the story that is not about that aspect of their life. It's about them being involved in the story. And it's been very rewarding to be able to write about characters like that. And I've written about quite a few of them and blending them into the story. So that impacted my work in in many ways. And we just became ever more involved with them and it became ever more fascinating. First time I saw them pair a socializing dog with an autistic child. And we saw a film of what that boy was like before the dog. Two weeks in training with the dog was just miraculous how he changed. He's still autistic, but all of that, what people would think of as problematic behavior, went away. And it was this bond between this animal and this boy that is, frankly, is mystical. And as you see things like that, it affects your work, it affects your life, and it becomes a very valuable and interesting thing. And we had a lot of fun taking people to friends, to graduations that CCI. Well, you and your wife have been so instrumental in the expansion of what CCI is able to do there in Southern California. Talk about that. Well, we've donated a lot to them, but we never ask when we donate something that we get our names put on a building or anything like that. And so at one point they added on that we knew it was because what we are contributing, they added buildings onto the Southern California campus. It moved up to Oceanside, and uh, and they had an opening of that. And we we pulled down for the opening. And as we pulled in, there was this big monument sign, and it was called the Dean and Jerry Coons Campus. And they said <laughs> we didn't ask for that. <laughs> so much for anonymity. Yeah. Now I heard you had that sign changed. Yeah, we didn't want to have them tear it down, so that seemed ungrateful. So we said, okay, we we don't really like that so much. But but then as time passed, and we went there so often with Trixie uh, for various events, and uh, when Trixie passed, 
I asked them if they would change the name of it to the Dean Jordan and Trixie Kunz campus, which they did. So Trixie's name is now on that monument sign, and that's very satisfying because she's the one that made us love that organization even more. Well, she is an extraordinary, and I feel like I know her so much from listening to A Big Little Life, which is your only memoir, right? It's the only memoir you've written, but it basically is totally around your experience with Trixie. It's, as I say in the book, she changed our lives. She changed them in in so many ways, and in many ways very quickly, which was, I think, what astonished me. We're both workaholics. And when Trixie came to live with us, I worked. I'd start in the morning and I worked till seven o'clock at night and we'd have dinner. Jordan would be busy running the business and the thing. She worked the same hours. Trixie wasn't there a couple few days a week, less than a week. And at five o'clock, because I think you know, dogs have a clock in their head. They do. It's bizarre, but they know when it's feeding time. They love their routine. So at five o'clock, she would come around the edge of my desk and look at me as I'm sitting there typing. <laughs> and she'd stare at me. And they can give you a pretty meaningful stare, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would look at her and smile and say, oh, you're so cute. And uh, after about two days of that, when she saw staring wasn't working, she, she came to the desk. I didn't realize she was there. I thought she was still near the end of the desk. She came over and I was working on the keyboard. She put her head under my arm and threw my hand off the keyboard. And I had enough. I figured out what you're doing on that thing. And I I would say, what are you doing? And boom, she did it again. And so I said, Trixie, down. And she kept it up. So I stopped that night. The next night, five o'clock, she came up, didn't even wait, came up, boom, threw my hand up. And after several days of this, I said, Okay, she's telling me I need more time than you're giving me. And that was the end of working till seven o'clock. She enforced reasonable hours. Yes. She, she should work for the state and you know, putting uh, abusive <laughs> employers on their She changed so many things in our lives that way. And it's just the, the sense that you begin to have of how much intelligence there is in that furry head begins to open your eyes to a greater sense of wonder about life in general. And also just going on a walk with the dog, you kind of walk that place a thousand times. When you walk it with a dog who takes it at a different pace and finds things interesting you didn't. And when you look at them, you realize how interesting they are. And suddenly everything becomes different than it was before. And that just keeps happening. It never stops. You talk in your book a little bit about the experience of going for a walk and the people you meet while you're walking and you get to know them as, oh, that's Rover's parent. Talk about that. Yeah, it took me the longest time to suddenly realize you you go for a walk, you meet some of the same people because you're walking that neighborhood. You stop and talk to each other because you have dogs in common. And first it starts out, oh, your dog is very sweet, very cute, this or that. And you ask the dog's name and you talk. And this went on and on and on for quite a while. And I knew all these people and their dogs. And one day I realized I didn't know any of the people's names. I knew the dog's names. And that struck me as, as pretty funny. The dogs were more important to them and to me than knowing who we are as each other. But we did kind of know each other because you'd end up talking about other things. But then I started asking people's names because I thought it was a little strange that I know all the dogs' names, but not theirs. And this is a little story I particularly like. We kept meeting this man. He was an Indian gentleman, India, Indian, grandfather. And we would meet him on the walks. And he was very, very sweet. And he got frailer and he was in a walker and everything. And one day he stopped me and we were talking. And he he said, do you know what your dog is? And I think I write about this in A Big Little Life. And I said, yeah, she's a golden retriever. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, what your dog is. And he said, in our faith, which was Hinduism, you know, we believe in reincarnation and that you go through life trying to be better and better. And when you get 
to where you are almost finished with the travail of being human in your last life before nirvana. We sometimes believe he come back as a beautiful dog that is well cared for. And he said, that's your dog. It reminds me a lot of the book, The Art of Racing in the Rain. The dog Enzo turns out to be, you know, they tell that same story about how dogs basically in their last lifetime, before they don't have to come back anymore, they reach that level of, of nirvana and, uh, and they are beautiful dogs, which clearly, clearly Trixie was for you. And the impact that Trixie still has, as we talk about this now, many years after her death, is profound, Dean. You know, this is how I got to be thinking about this. After I wrote A Big Little Life, I started getting just a lot of mail from people and uh, had to tell me about losing their dog. And that's not what Big Little Life is about. It's where it ends. And, right. and that's not even where it ends. There's hopeful stuff after that. But they would write me and they would say, one of the things they would say over and over is, uh, I can't explain to people in my family, they say, why are you so upset? It's just the dog. <laughs> my favorite thing, yeah. And they said, uh, how do I explain to them? I, I can't even find the words that, to say. And it made me think about it, maybe more than uh, I'd had before. And it really comes down to this, our relationship with dogs, any human relationship, no matter how wonderful it is and how loving it is, has its ups and downs. It has its moments of contention and disagreement. With a good dog, there isn't any of that. With a good dog, it's just this kind of pure, wonderful, happy relationship that goes on far too short, but still a lot of years. And that is a kind of a miraculous thing. So, of course, the bond is so deep with no negative connotations that it hits us pretty hard. I think that's a big part of it. Also, because dogs are the way they are, we kind of give ourselves to dogs in a way. I sometimes think we find it harder to give ourselves to other human beings, no matter how much, how close we are with them. You know the dog is always going to have the same attitude. And it's not just that the dog thinks you're great and loves you and you're God to that dog. It isn't just that. Because sometimes the dog looks at you and thinks, you could do this better. You could handle this a lot better. <laughs> yes. Have you had that experience where basically, I mean, clearly Trixie was training you, five o'clock quitting time, dad. But have you had the experience where the dog has made you a better person because they're basically saying, uh-uh? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, it's happened. I think it, you don't always realize it's happening when it's happening. But uh this past year, we moved, and I used to take Elsa for long walks in this. Uh, it's actually a business park near where we live, a lot of corporate offices, but it's enormous amounts of green space with alleyways of trees, and it's just beautiful. And we used to go there and walk every weekend, two times or whatever, and sometimes during the week. And this past year, moving into a new house, well, renovating it as we're moving into it, it was a nightmare. And a lot less fewer walks, less play. And one day I just saw an expression on her face that was like, okay, you. <laughs> and maybe it's my natural guilt, but I could see her looking at me thinking, what happened? Why? I'm still a good dog. I want to go for it. I want to go back there. I want to do this. I want to do that. Maybe she was psychically, telepathically sending this to me because I do believe that I've seen dogs communicate with each other, I swear, telepathically. And I almost think that's part of what goes on with the dog and autistic child. I totally believe that. I, I think that animals are wonderful at nonverbal communication, obviously, mm -hmm. but they read thought pictures that we send. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And uh, I just watch her, Elsa, now. And, and so the last few weekends, uh, my wife and I are taking on very long walks into those areas she likes walking on. And, uh, and now I notice she just pads around with me more faithfully than ever. It's like, we may be going on a walk again. And so uh, she makes you a better person if you're willing to pay attention and be made better. And sometimes we're stubborn about that, being human beings. We'll be right back after a short break to hear from our sponsors, 
When we return, Dean Koontz opens up about his father and a challenging childhood and how he wooed the love of his life. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. <laughs> no matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back. I'm speaking with celebrated author and dog lover, Dean Koontz. You talk a lot about the distinction between intuition and instinct with dogs. Yeah, and human beings too. Instinct, that's, that's that knowing this is dangerous or that there is intuition is that foreknowledge that we have before all learning. And it's been shown in many studies that Children, before they go to school, know that such things as two halves of the same objects equal a whole. There's all kinds of things that are intuitional knowledge that we're born with. It's actually a pretty spooky thing when you think about it. And I have seen dogs have more than just that wild instinct. And it may be that their intuitional thing comes from all these thousands of years of bonding with human beings. They become slowly, slowly more like us. I had an experience I talk about in A Big Little Life. I don't know whether this was instinct or intuition, but there was somebody in my business life that I had never met. I lived in, actually at the other end of the country, but I was given to be on the phone with in a publicity manner for uh, long periods of time, every time a new book came out. And this person was... Very, very pleasant on the phone, very nice. And at one point was coming to the West Coast and said, I'd like to uh, have lunch. And the first time it was a group of people and I took them all to lunch and we had a very nice lunch. And then a year passed and this person said, I'm coming back to the West Coast and now you have Trixie. I would like to meet Trixie. And I said, fine, you know, come to the house. And then after you met her, we'll go to lunch. This person came in the house, came into the living room. We sat and talked a little bit. Trixie was upstairs with my assistant, Linda, and she said, when do I meet Trixie? And I said, oh, and I went and called Trixie down. Trixie, who just loved people. Goldens love people more than they love other dogs. And Trixie came barreling down the steps, came to the entrance of the living room, froze, looked at this person, and sort of went, no. <laughs> I thought, what is this? She usually comes barreling into the room and wants to greet everybody. And Trixie would not come into the room and look at this person, get close to that person. I finally went and got her and pulled her into the room. And she would only sit close up against me. This other person was across the room. And it began to be real. And when this person got up to come across the room, Trixie retreated. And finally, I thought, I said, she must not be feeling well. And it was actually embarrassing. So I let Trixie go back to Linda. We went out to lunch. We're sitting at lunch. And this person, just as we've ordered lunch, says, 
oh, I hear you bought a beach house. And I said, yeah, we never take a vacation. So we thought if we had a house within 20 minutes and we could keep clothes there and not have to pack and everything, we could go there on weekends and finally take time off. And this person said, oh, great, because the next time I come, I'm going to stay there for two weeks. I'm going to have a lot of parties. But you will be invited to Presumptuous. Well, at first I thought this was a joke. It was not a joke. And everything got stranger and stranger during the course of this lunch, so that every time this person picked up a knife, I sort of went, okay, uh, I don't know where this is about to go. Uh, And then after this meeting, this person went back across the country, and we started getting phone calls, constant, long phone calls that I couldn't take. And they would be coming a couple a day and very intrusive, trying to be intruding into your life in a very strange way. And I thought, look at that. This dog knew. First encounter, walked up to the room, went, nah, nope, get me away from it. <laughs> now, dogs, I'm told, can smell schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And there may be certain conditions that Trixie smelled this and thought, no. This is something you don't get involved in. I think it had to do with scent, but it could also have been intuition or telepathic. I don't know. But it was so powerful and so immediate that it was quite a lesson. And I thought, okay, in the future, anybody this dog doesn't like, we're not having any relationship with Dogs are awfully good judges of character. Our, one of our dogs who is like that is so intuitive can watch TV and you know she's watching TV and the character comes out and she barks and it's like before you recognize that it's going to be a bad person, but she's able to see that somehow through the actor, just through the TV. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of uh, a lot of things you used to be told about dogs. They no longer tell you because they finally realized they were wrong. But we were told that dogs could not see images on a TV screen because they couldn't see that two-dimensional. They need the three-dimensional. Well, one of the first things we ever watched on TV with Trixie, she was sitting on the floor with me. My wife was on the sofa, and I was sitting with my back sofa on the floor with her kidney. She was watching the TV, and I thought, well, she's not really seeing anything there. And somebody came into the scene in a wheelchair. She immediately got to her feet, went across the room to the TV and stood watching that person. And I knew right then she had to see him. There was no sound of a wheelchair. There was no reason for her to know that if she hadn't seen it. And her having been a dog serving a person in a wheelchair, she immediately reacted to it. She was responding to her training through the visual cue of what was on TV. Yeah. That is... Extraordinary. You also talk about in your, one of your homes, you had a home theater put in and Trixie decided to plunk herself between you guys. Yeah, well, that was actually uh, Trixie. I try to remember whether she plumped between us at all because she preferred to the control module. It was a pretty large theater and the control module was in front of the last row. And we designed the theaters with little bays that people in wheelchairs could pull up to if we had people in wheelchairs. And the whole house was wheelchair-friendly. And uh, and she preferred to lay with her head right behind us, overseeing us. But Anna was totally the opposite. Anna insisted on sitting in a chair beside <laughs> you. So Jared and I couldn't sit side by side. Anna would want to sit between us, but in her own chair. And she would stay in that chair all the way through the movie. For a while, uh, Trixie, yes, you reminded me, Trixie actually did sit in a chair, one or two movies between us. And we had heard about this movie, I forget what it was called now, and we didn't know what it was about. We heard it was very exciting. It was actually a very, very bad movie. And it was early in his career and starred Vin Diesel. And uh, Trixie had watched one movie in a chair between us. And we went down to watch this movie and the movie came on. And in about 10 minutes, Trixie got off the chair onto the floor and put her head under the seat and stayed there until we turned the movie off, which wasn't that much longer. And after that, she would not sit in a chair in a theater. It was like, no, 
if there's stuff like that we're going to have to watch, I'm going to be sitting back here <laughs> behind you the bed so I can sleep if I want. Everyone's a critic. They love it. Yeah. So dogs, in a very real sense, have been like children for you and your wife. Yeah. I think a lot of people, a growing number of people, are choosing to have dogs instead of children. And they play that pivotal role. Was that a conscious choice that you made? Or is that something that just sort of happened in your life? Because, again, you guys are workaholics. Workaholics. There was also another aspect in my life, and it had to do with my father. My father was a very strange and dangerous person. There were a lot of people on my father's side of the family who had problems similar to his. My father had 44 jobs in 34 years, and a lot of times he didn't have a job. He was given to violence. He was extremely problematic. He made my mother's life hell. He, toward the end of his life, he was destitute and we had moved to California. It was a relief not having the doorbell ring at two in the morning and there he is drunk on the doorstep. But then we hadn't been here a year and a friend of his called and said, he only had about one friend, said he's right at the end of his life, he's destitute. You couldn't send him money because he'd take it to a bar and buy everybody drinks and it'd be gone in two days. So we thought, okay, he's got a year to live or whatever. We moved him to California, got him an apartment, and set a series of rules. I sort of became the father and he the child. He never changed. He got worse, and he lived 14 years. So we had even more experience of it, and he ended up in psych wards a couple of times, and the second time, he was diagnosed as sociopathic, which explained a great deal about my childhood and everything else. Whatever we knew he was, it always concerned us that when we looked at my father's side of the family, it was pure dysfunction everywhere. And we thought, do we want to risk bringing this into the world? Hmm. And it was a difficult decision, but it was one we finally made. Many years later, we had reason to believe my father might not have been my father. My wife saw this in a newspaper that the very first artificial inseminations were done by Johns Hopkins University Hospital, which was right across the state line from the county in Pennsylvania where we lived. And that all of those first experiments with that were done with very poor families where the husband was not fertile. And they chose poor families with no education in rural towns in, in this county in Pennsylvania so that they would never talk about it because what nobody knew at that time was whether artificial insemination might lead to birth defects or to other problems. So there were non-disclosure agreements signed. Mm -hmm. And my wife read about this in the paper one day and said, you were always called the miracle child. And it was your father always was sleeping around with everybody and never had another child. And here is who the donors, not their names, but they were famous writers, famous artists, famous musicians. <laughs> and she said, I think you should have a DNA test with your father and see if he really is. By this point, we were too late in life to go back to the family issue. And I said, what would that gain me? It wouldn't gain me anything. We're going to support him now for the rest of his life. And that would be no matter what happened here. And if I find out he isn't, then I have to go to Johns Hopkins and they're not going to want to release this information. Yeah. And suddenly, do I really want to know? And what if I find out that he is? Then this fantasy that he isn't my father goes away. <laughs> Your whole life would have been different. Decisions would have been way different if you knew, well, he's not really my dad. Yeah. So it was, it was what it was. And did we make that decision correctly? I don't know. We missed out on a lot in life, but there were, on the other hand, and it did mean we could work these kind of hours. We could put in seven day hour weeks for year after year, and you didn't have that obligation to the child. And having grown up in a situation where I never had a father, a relationship that was father son, it was much darker than that. I would have known 
what was required. I would have wanted to be the father of my father wasn't. So that's just the way it ended up. Life takes you in strange places and you make decisions and you hope you make the best one. Well, let's talk a little bit about that extraordinary relationship you and your wife have and the partnership and how you are working those seven hour days every day and you were almost barely apart from one another, right? Uh, we've been, well, this October, it'll be 54 years married and probably 57 years together. And it was the uh, greatest grace in my life was my wife. It was, uh, it's one of those things you realize how, how tenuous everything in life is. We went to the same high school and it was in this town of 4,000 people, but it had 1,200 students because they came from all over the county to that school. And as a consequence, it was a pretty big school and busy. And she was one year behind me. She was always present in every class. And I was always the class clown in my class. So, so we didn't exactly meet. And so I never saw her. And one day I was in a car riding shotgun with my best friend, whose family had something. Uh, his dad was the town banker. So they had two cars. And uh, so we could cruise. And it was his mother's car. And we pulled up to an intersection. And there was Jared waiting to cross the street. And I said, oh, who is that? I've never seen her. And he said, oh, you don't want anything to do with her. And I said, why not? And he said, she's the town shoemaker's daughter. And I said, I'm the town drunk's son. <laughs> <laughs> That's one heck of a step up. Uh, it's, an up it's an upgrade. <laughs> so then I you know, started sort of almost pursuing her like a stalker. And in A Big Little Life, I talk about how she turned me down for dates several times. And she would always say, oh, I'm working in the dry cleaner that night. Or the next time I asked her, I'm working in the theater that night. And I thought, she forgot the lie. It's a dry cleaner. Not a <laughs> and then the third time, oh, I'm babysitting that night. And it turned out she was because she didn't come from a well-to-do family either. And her dad was very old world, an immigrant from Italy. And if, if his daughter wanted new clothes when she was 13, she had to start working. She had to buy her own clothes. And uh, so she had various jobs and worked from the time she was very young. And her mother died when she was young. So that was an aspect of it as well. When I finally asked her a fourth time, she said, I can't. I said, you can't be working. I asked her to a class dance. And since she was president of her class, she had to go to the class dance. She said, yeah, but I have to sell tickets at the door. Then I have to run the record player. Then I have to take a turn selling refreshments. And then I have to clean up the gym. And I said, well, that'll be our first date. And it, was. <laughs> and it turned out great. Uh, and it's, it's been great ever since. You guys have been working together ever since. In fact, she helped to facilitate your career in a pretty extraordinary way. Yeah, I was, uh, I was teaching school. I worked in a poverty program for a year teaching underprivileged children. And then I worked in a regular school district for a year and a half. And I was selling short stories and a couple of paperback novels, but not enough to earn a living. And she said, uh, look, I know what you really want to do. And I'll support you for five years. And if you can't make it in five, you'll never make it. And I sometimes say I tried to negotiate her up to seven, but she has Sicilian blood. So she wins every <laughs> negotiation. And uh, it took almost that five years before there was a reliable level of income. But we never saw coming what happened. When we sat down, to, could we do this? It was success would be making 25000 a year on a reliable basis, which was more than now, but not a lot. And uh, we never saw it becoming the success of the game. And it wouldn't have without her giving me that opportunity. But boy, was I the bum of the family for a few years. Nobody <laughs> understood what she was doing. But she believed in you and what, 500 million copies worldwide since you, you guys are doing okay. We're doing okay. <laughs> like, what are the secrets? I mean, clearly you're both extraordinary people with extraordinary backgrounds that brought you together. But is this effortless, the partnership that you and your wife have forged? Yeah, 
every relationship has ups and downs in it. Uh, especially, uh, I mean, I think it took both of us a while to understand, given you lose a mother as young as she did, and you have a father who is very overworld and not that very sharing of emotion and things. And given my father was who he was, and my mother was very sickly, there's things out of that that shape you that you have to get past. And there are things you don't really at first even realize are things inhibiting you. And so, in a sense, I think it was something like kismet. Even though we didn't know we were doing it, we were helping each other through some of the same problems. And I'm prone to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. But I think because we came out of similar backgrounds that, and because she's smarter than I am, and that makes a big difference, too, that she's my first reader. I can give her a manuscript, and she'll come back with, she's my toughest and fairest critic. So that was also an important part of it. But also, I think we've discussed this. Why have we been so happy with each other? We spend all day together in some ways. And a lot of people say to me, I couldn't work with my wife all day long. We'd both go crazy. And we don't know what we'd do if we weren't in the same house all day. And Partly, it's because we have the same sense of humor. I think if you share a sense of humor, if you have a sense of the absurdity of the world and of life, it gets you through almost anything. And we've oftentimes found ourselves laughing at things that other people would find us a little strange laughing at, would think, okay, that terrible thing that happened to you was only a week ago. And there wasn't anything funny in it at the time. But you know a lot in life, aside from death itself, but almost everything else, sooner or later, there's funniness to it. There's a humor in it that you missed at the time, because uh, I once said, humanity is a parade of fools, and I'm right up front with a baton. Uh, So because we have that same sense of humor, and we enjoy the same movies and the same books, and we have the same favorite comedian, Stephen Wright. I don't know if you've ever Mm. listened to Stephen Wright. Absolutely. Oh, he is a genius. He is so amazing. I agree. And uh, if you have that sense of absurdity, which he has in spades, then a lot of things that are upsetting in life, you get past a lot easier because, hey, this is life. It is like this. It is absurd. And some of it is awful, but then so much of it is beautiful. So just get past the awful part and find something in it to laugh about. In what way was Trixie Kuntz, and I thought it, the book was great, where you basically realized, my gosh, she has a last name. This is, a, this is a, a real member of our family, your first dog. In what way did she shift or change your marriage? Well, we started working somewhat less. We still work <laughs> a lot. We started working somewhat less, which gave us more leisure time together. There is this, I, th- I think it is probably what happens in a marriage that works and the two people feel the same way, it's what happens when they have a child they love. That brings a new dimension to their own relationship. The affection they have for that other actually increases the affection they have for each other. And uh, and that's certainly what Trixie did, you know, when you, you have this dog that you love that make both of you laugh, that you both get concerned about when there's any illness that she has is something you're going through together and it it bonds you in another way. Can you ever see your lives without a dog in it now? The only way I see that is if I get to be afraid that I won't outlive the dog. And given my age, that's something I'll have to start thinking about. (laughs) And I'd have to have some arrangement for that dog that I felt very comfortable about. And I know dogs can handle that, but I also know dogs grieve. I talk about that in a big little life, I've seen it. And, uh, and there's classic stories of dogs that visit their master's grave for years afterwards on their own hook. And uh, so it's something to think about. It's an obligation. When you take on the dog, you want to be there to see that dog off. You don't want it having to go off in some other relationship that you're absolutely sure I'll never, nobody will love it as much as you did. You make a really interesting point in that book about the distinction between a natural death for a person 
and the obligation that we as dog lovers have for dogs in the end. It's it's the hardest thing. Uh, it's uh, human beings. Uh, I don't want to be euthanized just because I've got. When you work with so many people with disabilities, mental ones, physical ones, and so forth, you realize those lives are just as precious as any other. And there's no reason to think their quality of life isn't worth living. There are people who feel that way. And when you feel that way, you think it's not our job to decide when a human life isn't worth living. But in the case of a helpless animal like a dog that is suffering and there is no hope, that's a different thing. And, uh, and it was just the hardest thing uh, when we had to put down Trixie. The vet came to the house and, uh, and he came with the vet tech. So it just did a beautiful job with us, but it was devastating. Same thing with Anna. It's something I, I don't look forward to with Elsa. And uh, it's, I remember the first time Jerda said, I can never do this again. I can't go through it again. And it took her six months, or it took her eight months, it took me six months to say, I can do that again. And then we got Anna. And then after Anna passed, it was, she'd been gone for two weeks. And the people from CCI came up for a lunch and uh, we were sitting talking and they said, we know you're what you're like and it's going to be months yet till you can take another dog. But we do have one that needs a home if you know anybody. And she held up her phone with the picture of Elsa on it, and Jordan and I just both burst into tears and said, "We'll take her." And it was two weeks that she you know, <laughs> moved into it with us. And you know, I think the first time you think it's like a betrayal of the dog you lost, and of course it isn't, but that's what's kind of in your mind. And then once you've gone through it a couple of times, you you understand better that that new dog has a home and that you can give it, and that maybe it doesn't get a home. So. In a moment, Dean Kuntz on his latest work, season two of Nameless, his series of short thrillers. But you won't find these in bookstores or on shelves. And some final thoughts on Trixie and the afterlife. That's when we come back. We're back with Dean Kuntz. Dean, you have another collection of works coming out, uh, Nameless season two, it's from a publishing model that I'm intrigued with, that partnership that you have with Amazon. How does it work, and how do you, as such a prolific writer, view it? Well, it's kind of strange. I'll try to condense this. I was writing novelettes, novellas, to support the publication of a new book. And Random House was putting them online for $1.99 each. And, you know, it's promotion, but also selling them. Mm -hmm. And they sold very well. And... Amazon Original Stories came to me and said, would you write a story directly for us? We'll pay you and uh, we'll put it on that Amazon Original Stories. And I said, sure. And I wrote a story called Ricochet Joe and it did very well. And so time passed and they came and said, would you write six stories with the same character? And uh, this, and I thought, well, I said, I like the shorter form. And a novelette can be almost as rich as a novel if you approach it in the right way. It's always been a form I like. These are between 10 and 20,000 words, whereas a novel's 100,000 or longer. And uh, I said, yeah, let me do this. So I'll think about it. I'll send you a proposal of a character in a situation, which I did in two pages. My agent called back and said they want to make a deal of six stories like this. And they want to give it away on Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime members. And I said, huh, how's that work? They said, <laughs> That's not my business model. Yeah. yeah. And they said, oh, uh, they said they'll make it worth your while. Uh, they'll pay you to write them, make it worth your while. But they want Amazon Prime members to have, feel it's something, the benefit they get from being Amazon Prime. I said, well, let's see what they offer. Well, their offer was such that I would have been an idiot to say no. So I wrote the stories, and I think, as they have said it, they were they were hoping to get a million downloads of the series in a year or so, and I think they passed two million in the first year, and it's just kept two going. billion million million. Okay, I was going to say they doubled what they were expecting. Yeah, and it is still going very strong. 
So and when they, they came back and said, well, let's do a season two. And we mutually agreed, let's not make this an endless thing. Let's give this character an end arc and, uh, and bring it to an end at 12. And uh, I had just great fun with these stories. I think the character is fascinating. His situation is fascinating. And there were plenty of places to take him. And each one of the stories is a standalone but there's also an overriding arc that I think, especially in season two, I urge people read them in order because they're scarier that way because the overriding arc is pretty scary. I like it. And you can either read them or you can download the audio book, the audio version. Yeah. And the audios are brilliantly narrated too. So. Well, speaking of brilliant narration, I got to say, I don't know how many books you have narrated, but you know, A Big Little Life was extraordinary as read by you. Well, now I read a condensed version. Mm -hmm. They only wanted an abridged version and they wanted me to read it. And it was the hardest thing. I've, I've got great respect for people who narrate audiobooks. It is tough work because the director's always saying, you muffed that word or you did this or that. Uh, and uh, also when I got to the losing the dog, it was the most emotional recording session, but once I finished it, I said, never again. I respect what these people do. Hire somebody else. Now the book is available in its full version and narrated by somebody else. And uh, I, I will never try that again. Well, it is so wonderful to hear it in your voice and to feel the emotion that you just clearly share. And, and it just comes through both in the words and the voice. You say that in the book, you basically identify you know, you asked Trixie, is she an angel? And that was the time that she was like, do you feel that that she was an angel? I don't know. There is something mystical about that relationship, how profoundly it changed me and how much beauty it brought into our lives and how it brought us into a connection with a group of Norbertine monks that live near us, whom we've become pretty, pretty closely involved with. So I have to wonder, I certainly have to wonder, but whether they're true angels or just angels in the sense that they're more perfect than human beings will ever possibly hope to be. Either way, that word angel fits them. When you see the rainbow bridge trope that is so often used when someone loses a dog, what do you think? Uh, I certainly think there, uh, if there's an afterlife, which I believe I'm a believer, the uh, dogs are there. There's no question in my mind. I, uh, uh, not to offend cat people, I'm not 100% sure about cats, but <laughs> with you. But the but dogs, yes. C.S. Lewis said that when he was talking about can animals have an afterlife, and he said his way of thinking about it was that if a dog and a human relationship is so profound that, or another animal, but so profound that it makes a better person of the person, then that dog is definitely has an afterlife. I forget what he called it, but it's because of the dog's function in this life as, uh, how would he probably put it, as a vehicle of grace. And I like that. I think that's, uh, but whether they are or not, yeah, I think they're there. There's going to be a lot of dogs on the other side. There are. Probably more dogs than people. <laughs> it depends where on the other side, I suppose, right? <laughs> well, there's not any dog on tail. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, that is for sure. Well, Dean Kuntz, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And uh, again, I celebrate you for all the success that you have had and shared with people. But this revelation that you had relatively, you know, midlife when you were like, hey, dogs really make a difference is extraordinary. And I want to see some more dog books from you. Uh, they're coming. <laughs> they are. Okay. What, what can you sneak peek? No, <laughs> never reveal what you get in the works. Well, I thank you so much. Thank you. This was really a pleasure to do. So thank you. Such incredible insights from Dean Koontz on dogs, writing, family, and life. What a privilege to sit down with him and relive some of the poignant moments that he's experienced and how it's shaped him professionally and personally. You can find out so much more about Dean Koontz and Nameless online. We will have links in our show notes. 
And if you like what you heard and want more fascinating chats like this one, please check out the rest of The Long Leash. If you're already a regular listener, we have plenty of other shows on Dog Podcast Network, like Dog Edition and Dog Cancer Answers, made by dog lovers for dog lovers. If you have anyone in mind that you'd like to hear on our show or even just some feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We would love to hear what you think. You can find us on our website at www.longleashshow.com. That's longleashshow.com, as well as on all the social media channels. And if you happen to stop by the website, go ahead and click that little blue microphone icon found at the bottom right of every page and leave us a voicemail. We're also available on all the podcast apps. We are on Spotify as well as YouTube. So please make sure you follow us so you don't miss a thing. And one last thing, we'd love it if you would tell your friends about us here at the Long Leash and Dog Podcast Network. We dog lovers are always looking for something good to listen to while we, you know, accompany our dogs around the neighborhood. So please tell a friend, a fellow dog lover about this podcast and about Dog Podcast Network. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Dean Kuntz for being our guest. I'm James Jacobson, and on behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.